0: This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer.
1: Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Okay, we'll play it one more time. Oh, yes. The Philadelphia Spanish announcer's call of Cody's Clank.
0: Pierre de Cody Parking, 43 yardas, el snap, le mete el pie, distancia, dirección, le dio el poste, no, falló, ¡Oh! no señor, no señor, no señor, no señor, no señor, no señor, ¡No, señor! los hijos se van con la victoria, ay papá, no señor, Chicago, Chicago. All right, now that's that's a <laughs> love blow. It's, it's in, it. in our faces. Oh gosh!
1: Because our... we were ahead most of the game, so it was a little, it was, it was awful. I feel so bad. Who's having a worse day today, him or Ed Burke? Mm. Mm. I'll tell you what, um, "Oh, oh Señor" yeah. is my new favorite <laughs> broadcaster catchphrase, replacing Dick Enberg's. Oh my! <laughs> That's good. Uh, all right, switching yeah. gears, but he, you know, he's a sports fan. Everybody has to enjoy that call that transcends politics yeah. and uh, sports and Just city such loyalties. Such the real emotion. I don't know I if, Ma- if McCarthy—McCarthy's an East Coaster, so he's probably like a Giants or Jets fan. Can you imagine? For well, more, let's find out. We'll talk about that, and yeah. we'll also get his thoughts on Syria and uh, the Mueller investigation. We're pleased to be joined again by Andy McCarthy, former chief assistant U.S. attorney in Manhattan contributing editor at National Review. Andy, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. it,
0: it it's my pleasure. I, I'm a Jet fan who's heard no shortage of no senior. For <laughs> so yes. My heart my heart goes out to you guys today. And oh, it, it, of all the places, I'm sure you wouldn't have liked this if it was a game against New York, but Philadelphia's got a sting. It's like the one place in the country where the fan base on days where they don't have games, they go to the airport and, boo the plane no landing. No kidding,
1: go, right? Exactly, <laughs> booing Santa Claus, famously but <laughs> precisely. Um, all right. Well, I want to get your take. Um, let's get, not the legal realm, the foreign policy realm, for a second, because you wrote about Syria, and you you sort of have the same position I have. I, I'm not sure why I'm supposed to be so upset for uh, about this troop withdrawal from Syria, even a conditional one, as John Bolton announced over the weekend, uh, saying that uh, this is pending a firm commitment from Turkey not to target the U.S.'s Kurdish allies. There's an interesting piece by a retired general in uh, the Chantanugan newspaper, of all places, B.B. Uh, B- Bell is his name, and he spent uh, 39 years in the service, 13, as a general. He, he wrote this, um, all of our senior military leaders, including me, were born and raised with the deployed expeditionary conflict mindset where America, as the world's policeman, was the right thing to do. We were all nurtured in the globalist belief that in the post-World War II era, it was America's responsibility and indeed duty to police the planet and make everything safe for democracy. I spent 14 years deployed overseas, 10 of those as a general. Out there, I was born and raised to go forth and present America as the global policeman. And I did my job. Looking back, all this resembles what the Roman generals were taught to do by the empire. Go out into the vast empire, establish Roman rule of law, make friends and allies. And where you run into issues, bring military force to bring to bear to solve the problem. That's what the Romans did, and that's pretty much the same thing we've been doing for the last 70 years plus, and he's, of course, suggesting not necessarily to our benefit. Uh, so I, I just thought about his review of American foreign policy post-World War II in the context of the Syria withdrawal and the hooting, hollering across the aisle about Trump's decision.
0: Yeah, well, I, I guess i I'm very sympathetic to the general on that. I, you know, I think that Dan, that there's been like too much of a swing of the pendulum away from uh, the Vietnam war era where our veterans were just treated shamefully and anyone who was uh, associated with that uh, conflict was kind of tuned out. Mm -hmm. I I think we have an over-reliance now on the generals. I think, I have great respect for uh, the warfighting capabilities and ingenuity of people like, uh, you know, Petraeus and McChrystal and uh, General Mattis, General McMaster. But as far as public policy is concerned, their opinion isn't worth anything more than mine. And I just think that sometimes we we now treat, uh, well, we have to do what the generals say, as if that was like, you know, that came down from Mount Sinai, Um It seems to me that after World War II, when the world sort of delusionally decided that there was nothing worse than war, um, which was an odd thing for the generation that fought the the Nazis uh, and and Japanese imperialism to conclude, uh, they went to war precisely because there are many things that are more horrific than war is horrific as war is. But we've gotten away from the idea that you go in uh, when you need your military because there's some American interest that's at stake. Uh, you do whatever has to be done, whether it's to achieve victory uh, over the enemy or to get the enemy to withdraw for whatever reason it is that you've, you've sent your military. This idea that in order to vindicate American interests, We have to move into your crappy country for 10 or 20 years and spend a trillion dollars to fix what we broke. To me, is just preposterous, and it's based on this idea that there's a universal value system that everybody uh, is signed on to no matter what part of the world and what culture you come from, and everybody wants to live uh, like Americans and, and Westerners. And if we only would just go in and and show you uh, how great Western institutions can be in your country, uh, of course, you'll abandon your own culture and your own civilization and sign on to it. Most of the places that we've been in in the last 20 years, they don't want American troops there. Uh, And the American people don't want American troops to be there. And if you look at what we've achieved in the 20 years since 9 11, and I'm somebody who strongly supported. the intervention, particularly in Afghanistan, where we were attacked, um, you wouldn't even notice that there was much of an American footprint. I mean, in the end of the day, what did we accomplish in Iraq other than turning it into a satellite of Iran?
1: Yeah. Um, changing gears, a few days ago you wrote an article about Trump. He keeps giving Mueller reasons to pursue the collusion probe. Why is that? What is Trump doing, and what should he be doing to try and end this?
0: Problem? Well, I, I would— Amy, I would think his lawyers would be telling him um, not to use the word Russia in any any time that he could avoid saying it. And, you know, last week he gave one of the most. Oh, gosh. Preposterous no, versions no, of oh, yeah, the... history. I mean, unimaginable. The, this idea that the Russians went into Afghanistan Oy. because they were being attacked by terrorists. I don't know. If, you know. No. He said right. that you know Russia had terrorists were coming into the country from Afghanistan. Russia is like twenty five hundred miles from yeah. Afghanistan. You think at least he saw Charlie um, Wilson's it, War? Yes. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Look, Russia went into Afghanistan. Because of, of totalitarian communist politics. I and mean, basically they had a communist regime Soviet regime yeah, right. that was that was being attacked by fundamentalist Islamic militants uh, because it was trying to change the culture in Afghanistan, which is what we were just talking about, right? right. Um, and the, there was a revolt that rose up against it. It didn't have anything to do with terrorists going into Russian territory. It was communist imperialism and it suggests first of all it suggests that, that trump doesn't understand the geopolitical threat that was posed by the soviet union and that ought to inform people in terms of what putin's revanchist ambitions are it suggests that he doesn't understand the the roots of modern militant islam but to me the, as a lawyer who would think about, you know, what would Trump's lawyers be thinking at this point? He's saying exactly what Putin would want him to say. And I I just for the life of me, I don't understand why the president would do that and why he would do it gratuitously. Uh, You know, there was that was like apropos of nothing. Somebody starts to talk about the wall and the uh, and the current standoff in Washington uh, over the fact that, you know, we a part of the government isn't funded, so we have a we have a partial shutdown. And it's like the president said, you know, that put me in mind of the 1979 Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. And really? Yeah. <laughs> well, but, 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 but so
1: on that score, though, uh, despite the astounding ignorance of that statement, I mean, that's not evidence of anything. Except ignorance, no, I, perhaps.
0: Yeah, I agree with you, but look, what we're trying to assess here is what Mueller is doing right and i've always thought that Mueller has two objectives here one is he he wants to make a case on trump if there's a case to be made that doesn't mean that you know he's necessarily going to go out of his way to do that i think as a matter of fact he won't do that i don't think there's evidence of a criminal conspiracy between trump and russia now if they find Something else along the way, you know, he's, he's obviously still digging. But at the moment, I don't think the president's going to be charged criminally. I've always thought the other part of Mueller's agenda, being an old FBI and Justice Department guy, is to justify the very controversial decision that was made by the Obama Justice Department and FBI to open an investigation on the opposition presidential candidate. And I think one of the things that Mueller's report is going to be used for is to say that even if there weren't crimes, there were grave reasons for suspicion that there were very disturbing ties between people in Trump's circle and the Russians, and that that explains why Trump said many reprehensible, ingratiating things about Putin, both during the campaign and after the campaign. And I just think Trump continues to give him more evidence of that. I don't know why he would do that.
1: What about uh, the pronouncements of the left? I mean, I get what you're saying about Trump. What about the pronouncements of the left impacting Mueller's investigation? And, for example, I mean, the Democrats are clearly looking for the Mueller report whenever it is delivered to be the basis to substantiate their calls for impeachment, right? And right. Mueller is seeing, as we're all seeing, the likes of this Rashida Talib say we're going right. to impeach this MFR. And the concern Mueller would have potentially, I don't know, I'm asking for your insight, that he would be seen as a collaborator with the most vulgar and radical elements of the left who desire impeachment by any means necessary.
0: Yeah, well, you know, look, this is a big problem, and I think that no matter what Mueller's report says, uh, you know, if he doesn't charge, he'll be, you know, a tool of one side. If he does charge or if he doesn't charge and he, uh, you know, he writes a screed uh, that that suggests that Trump is unfit, then he's a tool for the other side. What I think, Dan, is that we first have to decide who is Mueller and therefore what should his report say. I know everybody's talking about, you know, when his report comes out, who will get it, who will decide what the public gets to see of it. My more fundamental question is what should be in the report? Remember, Mueller is merely a prosecutor. He is not counsel to a congressional impeachment committee. He is not like Bob Woodward writing a book about Trump's fitness. In the Justice Department, a prosecutor's job is to decide There's enough evidence to charge or there isn't. If there isn't, you don't write a fulsome public report. The Justice Department doesn't speak publicly about the evidence of uncharged people. And if you remember, when they removed Comey from office, it was on the basis, at least in part, of a memorandum that was written by Rod Rosenstein, the deputy attorney general, who up until recently has been supervising Mueller's investigation. And the main complaint that Rosenstein had about Comey was that he spoke publicly about the evidence in the case against Hillary Clinton, who was not charged, right. which was a big violation of Justice Department uh, protocols. So it, it seems to me – I know that a lot of people will say, well, the evidence against Clinton was publicized, so the evidence against Trump ought to be publicized whether he's charged or not. That's not the way the Justice Department works, and since Mueller's merely a prosecutor – I don't think if he doesn't have charges to bring against the president then I don't think he ought to say anything more than there's not sufficient evidence to charge so Oh that would be yeah, a but moment But there should be a big there should be a big debate about why is it appropriate for Mueller to say anything more than that if he yeah. doesn't have charges
1: No it's, it's 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 an interesting point I mean in terms of you know professional ethos I just don't know if uh, such a thing exists anymore in uh, in our politics yeah, right. He is Andy McCarthy, great. former chief assistant U.S. attorney in Manhattan, contributing editor at National Review, nationalreview.com, where you can find all of his musings. Andy, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it.
0: Yeah, my sympathy, guys. Have a great week. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. All right. Thanks a lot.
1: And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line.
0: Listen to Dan and Amy on your smartphone. Download the AM560 mobile app today at 560theanswer.com mobile.